Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of giants. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today our topic is sumo. Sumo wrestling. You've probably heard of sumo. Yeah, sumo is a full contact wrestling sport. Yep. The main goal is to either force your opponent out of the ring or to get them to touch the ground with any part of their body other than the soles of their feet before you do. That is correct. You know, one of my favorite facts from researching this is that the word sumo translates to striking one another. Yeah. I just think that's kind of hilarious. Like I imagine a couple thousand years ago, a couple people getting together, being like, you know, I have an idea for this sport. It's called hitting each other. And basically we hit each other. Or just a couple of guys were slapping each other around and someone was like, oh, sumo. And they couldn't have imagined that it was going to become the national sport of Japan. <laughs> yeah, it is considered a Gendai Budo, which is a modern Japanese martial arts. Yeah, it's uh, in the same category as like karate and judo and aikido and all that. Yeah, pretty and cool. it's uh, preserved many ancient traditions and rituals yeah. involved with sumo. Yeah, and it is pretty ancient. It's hard to pin down the origin of a lot of these really old Japanese things because... There aren't a ton of records from way back then, but supposedly sumo is at least 2,000 years old. Pretty old. Yeah. So let's dive a little bit into the history of sumo and see where it originated from. Let's do it. So sumo has been intertwined with Shinto for pretty much since its inception, it seems like. Yeah, the oldest references I could find to sumo is something called Sumai no Sechi, which translates to Sumai Party, which was a ritual held by the imperial court um, where representatives from each province would come and wrestle a kami. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to go back a little further than that. Oh, yeah? What'd you yeah. find? So we mentioned Shinto. If you don't know what Shinto is, Shinto is uh, the ancient religion of Japan, basically. We talked about it a bit in our shrines and temples, or I think we called it temples and shrines episode. So go back and listen to that if you want to know more about Shinto. But uh, in that episode, I mentioned that in the 700s, there were a couple books that collected all of these old stories and folk tales that formed the basis of the Shinto religion. And uh, those two books both actually mention something about the origin of sumo. So one of them was called the Kojiki, which translates to records of ancient matters. And there's a tale of a sumo match between two kami, two deities, to determine who had dominion over Japan. Uh, the other book from the 700s is called the Nihongi, the Chronicles of Japan. And there's a tale in there of the first human sumo match between mere mortals. Nomi no Sukune is known as the first sumo wrestler. He fought Taima no Kehaya at the request of Emperor Suinin in 22 BC, more than 2,000 years ago. And uh, it was apparently super violent. Like it wasn't just, oh, push this guy out of the ring. It was like, kill that guy. Oh, wow. Yeah. Or cause the other to surrender. Like, I mean, way back then, sumo was brutal. It, you know, it was not as kind of structured uh, as it is today. Sumo is still fairly brutal. But I know what you I know what you mean. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, even more but brutal. They're not fighting to the death anymore. Right, exactly. 
So yeah, in the Nihongi, Nomi no Sukune won, and that's he's the human creator of sumo in legend. All right. Yeah. But like you said, not long after the gods introduced sumo to humans, so it was connected to Shinto a lot, and it was also performed a lot for emperors. Emperor. Yeah. Yeah. And their courts. I actually have a fun little story from the 5th century. Oh, yeah? It's, yeah, I just thought it was entertaining. So this is apparently a historical record from the 5th century. And I don't know if it's officially sumo. It seems debatable whether or not this is actual sumo. But Emperor Yuriaku ordered two half-naked women to wrestle because he had a carpenter that was working for him who was, like, really proud that he never made a mistake. You know, he's like, I, I don't make mistakes. You hire me, I'm just... I'm awesome at being a carpenter, right? So the emperor is like, okay, well, you try to stay focused while there are these two half-naked women wrestling over here. And of course, the carpenter was watching the women while he was working, and he screwed up, made a mistake. So what does the emperor do? Uh, Kills him. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) How did I know that? Yeah, that's just what emperors were like back in the day, I guess. (laughs) Not very nice, but interesting story. Yeah. So, Paul, did you have anything really between like the 5th century and the 1600s or so? Like, it seems like there was a lot going on, a lot of different forms of sumo. Yeah, I mean, basically what I got out of that is it eventually evolved into a wrestling match where the aim was to throw your opponent. Yeah. So in that time span, in the thousand years or so that we're glossing over, there was a lot of different types of sumo happening in different parts of the country. Right. It's hard to say exactly. There was know, how no one. This is how sumo's done at this moment. Right. Right. But it was just to list some of the things that sumo was used for back then. Um, like I said, it was performed a lot for entertainment for the emperors. When samurai came around, it was contests between samurai, either for money or for training or to settle disputes, that kind of thing. Sumo was performed at shrines to raise money and to honor the kami. There were rituals to ensure a bountiful harvest. But for this whole time, I mean, it was pretty violent, like a lot more violent than it is these days. Yeah, and I heard that uh, sumo always seemed to get more popular during times of civil strife or civil war because Mm -hmm. it was used as a training technique. Yeah. Um, So things got a little more formalized in the 1600s. And we keep mentioning the Tokugawa shogunate. They keep popping up. So, yeah, they took over in the 1600s. That's when things kind of started forming more into what we see these days. I even heard before the Tokugawas, Oda Nobunaga is credited with being the one to first introduce the doyo, the circular Mm. ring. Okay. And he was in power right before the Tokugawas. Hmm. So I guess not long after that, there was a former samurai, Ikazuchi Gondayu, who helped create more or less the current rules and what the arena looks like these days. So that kind of pushed sumo into becoming a professional sport and uh, eventually the national sport of Japan. Uh, we mentioned the Tokugawa shogunate. They were real big into it. They had a lot to do with promoting it and uh, you know making it a big national thing. Yeah. Uh, many of the early wrestlers were uh, samurai, uh, mm-hmm. maybe even ronin, samurai without a master. Mm-hmm. And even today, a lot of wrestlers come from a family history of being sumo wrestlers. Hmm. Cool. Um, I have a fun fact about uh, Matthew Perry. 
you know Matthew Perry, the guy from Friends? Of course. That's the guy from Friends, right? Yeah. Isn't that his name? Chandler. Yeah. Well, Matthew Perry was also the guy that came in 1853 and kind of helped force uh, Japan to open its borders. Uh, the other Matthew Perry. Yeah, that one. I just have a fun little quote from him. When he showed up and he saw the sumo wrestlers, he described them as overfed monsters. <laughs> but then uh, the Japanese watched, you know, his sailor's box and they just called him scrawny American sailors. Like they got nothing <laughs> on our sumo guys. So, uh, yeah, that brings us to, you know, the 1900s. Emperor Showa was a big fan and helped push his popularity even bigger. He would attend one day of each tournament in Tokyo. And, you know, endorsement by the emperor is a pretty big thing. Yeah. And that tradition has continued. A lot of other members of the imperial household will make appearances at sumo tournaments even today. Interesting. In the 1990s, that was basically when sumo was at its very peak of popularity. They did polls and they found that that was the most popular sport in Japan. 1994, I think, was the very peak. But by 2004, it was fifth because baseball was really big in Japan. It still is, right? Yep. Also, marathon running, pro soccer were more popular. And even high school baseball was more popular than sumo. The marathon running surprises me more than the high school baseball. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. I knew the Japanese were really good distance runners, hmm. especially even over marathon lengths. They've got a ton of records for like 100-mile races or like all-day races. Wow. Like 24 hour races. I was there's, not aware. There's people of that. that actually run for 24 hours straight and like see how far they can get. And there's world records for it. That's crazy. And the Japanese dominate. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. Should we talk about what sumo is like these days? Yeah. So, how many tournaments are there each year? There are six official tournaments each year. Correct. Those tournaments are known as basho. So every two months, they're evenly spaced throughout the year, and they're run by the JSA, the Japan Sumo Association. There are also exhibitions throughout the year, and you can mm -hmm. attend those as well as the uh, tournaments. You know, they're kind of open to anybody. Yeah, there's other places to see sumo, but only the tournaments count in the professional rankings. Mm -hmm. So uh, three of those six tournaments take place in Tokyo in January, May, and September, and then Osaka has one in March. Nagoya has one in July, and Fukuoka has one in November, which is the one I'm going to be attending in a couple months. Nice. I can't wait to hear what that was like. I can't wait to tell you. <laughs> Another interesting thing about these is you don't buy a ticket for a specific match. You buy a ticket for an entire day, because these tournaments are 15 days long. Right, and a match is often over in a couple seconds. Right, they can be super fast. So you watch mini matches. Yeah. I mean, in one day, there, there could be a ton of them. Yeah. So like I said, popularity is dropping even still. It's probably less popular than that poll I was talking about in 2004. And uh, I mean, less young Japanese people want to be sumo wrestlers. I read that a lot of the older sumo wrestlers, and maybe this is older generations love to talk crap about younger generations, but you know, a lot of them are just like, oh, kids these days, they're just not tough enough to be sumo wrestlers, you know? Uh, so Yeah, they would say that. <laughs> yeah. So foreign sumo wrestlers are actually becoming more common than ever. I mean, they're still outnumbered by Japanese sumo wrestlers, but they're becoming pretty big. Um, another reason that the popularity has been dropping a bit is there have been uh, kind of a lot of scandals recently. 
Yeah, they have suffered a number of scandals in the last 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. The scandals involve widespread match fixing, which is always a black eye for any sport. Yeah, I think there had been like suspicions for a pretty long time. But in 2011, 14 wrestlers and even a few stable masters, the guys that house and train the sumo wrestlers, were basically proven to be involved in match fixing. So that's a pretty big blow. Yeah, there's a big investigation that concluded it was a widespread uh, practice in the sport. Right. And, you know, a lot of different sports have scandals. Every sport's had a scandal with match fixing. Yeah. But it seems like sumo's ties with religion kind of makes people hold it to a higher standard. So when those scandals happen, it's like, oh, you know, you were saying all this stuff about how this is a sacred sport and you're just right, playing you're, around you're defiling with it. Right, exactly. Yeah, there's also been Yakuza ties. That's been a public relations problem. Yeah. Um, there was even one match apparently where 50 Yakuza members or so like sat in the front rows to be seen, apparently to cheer their boss up who was in jail. Yeah, I read but that But it was too. not a good look for Sumo. Yeah, yeah. We should mention that Yakuza is like the Japanese mafia, yes. basically. And they've been known to have relationships with some Sumo wrestlers in mm-hmm. the past. Yeah, and I think I read that there were some stable masters involved in like illegal betting with the Yakuza. Well, that might be where some of the match fixing is coming from. Those yeah. two definitely yeah, kind of be. probably go hand in hand. Sure. There's also, hazing has been a big part of sumo for a long time, apparently. Which is part of what makes me discount the, oh, kids aren't tough enough these days. Well, maybe (laughs) you should stop uh, beating them up and hazing them. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, (sighs) Japanese culture is really intense about training for, you know, a lot of things. Yeah. And I read that the stable masters, you know, the people that were training these wrestlers would point to this hazing as like a point of pride. Like, oh, you know, our wrestlers are tough because you have to be tough to go through all the crap we do to you, basically. Yeah, it's... Hazing's been a problem for many organizations all over the world. Yeah. It's not a good thing. Yeah. It always gets worse as the generations go on. It never... They never go easier on the next generation. Yeah. So it leads down a bad road. Yeah. Which actually led to one very high-profile incident where a uh, 17-year-old training to be a sumo wrestler actually died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the stable master apparently hit him in the head with a bottle and then ordered another sumo wrestler to continue physically abusing him. Yeah, and the kid ends up dying. Super sad story. Yeah. The stable master did go to jail for it. Yep. So that's good, at least some justice there. And yeah. uh, the prime minister, I believe, stepped in. And like asked the sumo association to make sure that they're not doing things like that anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hope you know they can reform that kind of thing because it would be it would be really sad to see sumo just kind of dwindle and disappear because of a few bad eggs. Yeah, from what I've seen, there haven't been any bad scandals like the last two years ish yet. Mm-hmm. So maybe they're on a good roll. Yeah, or maybe just nothing's come out yet. Yeah, but hopefully. Hopefully they'll be on a good run and gain that popularity back. Yeah. Um, So not to focus on the controversial stuff about sumo, but I thought there was one other interesting uh, little point that I read. Historically, women, so they're not allowed to be wrestlers, but they're not even allowed to touch the doyo or the, the ring where these matches happen. In fact, 
in 2018, there was a mayor who was in the doyo, like making some announcement or something, and he collapsed. And these two women rushed into the ring to like help him out. Yeah. And uh, the ref was just like telling them to leave, like get out of here. You're not allowed here. Yeah. Like, oh, your your rules about no women are more important than this guy's life. You know? Yeah. The uh, I believe the sumo association did apologize for that. Yeah, they later did. And they did correct the referee. Yeah. There was another incident involving a mayor, though, too. Hmm. Um, the mayor of Osaka was a woman, and traditionally it was the mayor that handed over some of the prizes to the winner at the end of the tournament. Hmm. And they told her she either had to do it from an aisleway on the side of the ring, or she had to send a male representative, <laughs> which uh, she did not like, obviously. Yeah. So that kind of became an issue as well. Yeah. And even just in general, women in sumo are expected to be supportive wives. That's pretty much it. Like, you're, they're not allowed to have much more of a role. And the JSA uh, even says their official stance is that this is tradition and that it would dishonor all of our ancestors to change it, you know? Right. It's Hollow seen, argument. Yeah. It's great that they've got all the tradition. That's part of what makes sumo cool. Yeah. But then you get that double-edged sword where there's some dumb traditions Mm -hmm. that we've moved past in the rest of society that we need to we need to catch up on. Yeah, not to mention that all this ancient Japanese stuff has changed so much over history. Like, oh, now all of a sudden it's set in stone and you can't change things? Right, emperor used to have two half-naked women wrestle and <laughs> but now it's not cool, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, who knows. Anyway, you know, we're not saying that sumo is is a whole as a big sham or anything. No, but Still, that's part of the reason why the Popularity probably has declined right. recently. Right. So let's get into what a sumo wrestler is. Like, how do you become a sumo wrestler? Who are these guys? So in Japan, they're known as rikishi, right? Yep. And uh, as of 2018, there are 47 stables. They usually call them in English. Japanese, they're called heia which is kind of funny because that translates to room. Like just a room in your house is a heia. That's kind of, I don't know where they got the stable thing. I guess they're comparing it to horses, it sounds like. I don't know. Anyway, so they got these stables where these wrestlers train and they also live there. Like we talked about how training for any major thing in Japan is very intense. And a lot of times it means devoting your life to it. That's yeah. definitely the case for sumo. Yeah, you move into a stable, typical life of a trainee. You're getting up at 5 a.m. to start training. And then the uh, higher-ranked wrestlers get up around 7 and start training. And now you, as a trainee, have to go do chores or hold towels for them or wipe off their sweat or cook lunch. Mm -hmm. It's a very hierarchical structure yeah. between the top-ranked wrestlers and the lower-ranked wrestlers. Yeah. Did you read about how they bring in new people? Like where they come from? I didn't really hear anything about recruiting. So they have scouts that go around and watch local sumo and uh, even judo competitions. Hmm. There's some similarities there. Um, and most new recruits are 15 to 16 when they join a heia. Okay. Pretty young. Yeah. I did hear that some people came from schools where they did sumo. Mm -hmm. Or even from colleges, if they are a successful sumo wrestler in college, mm. they sometimes transition to yeah. professional. Yeah, I mean, uh, not all of them 
come in at 15 or 16, but I, I think most of them. Yeah. And um, I didn't see any numbers, but I heard like a lot of them don't make it or don't last very long. It's a really tough life. I don't know how many come yeah. in to get five that stay for a while. Yeah. I remember uh, I watched some something. I watched something where they talked to one of these stable masters and he said that there was, uh, this was where he was talking about how kids these days are just not tough enough. <laughs> yeah. And he said there was this one kid that came and uh, he didn't like vegetables. And uh, one of the other wrestlers took some vegetables and stuck them in this guy's bowl. And the kid is just like, screw this. And he just runs out. And uh, the stable master's like, we didn't even chase after him. Like, if he's, yeah. if he's not able to just sit and eat his vegetables, like, he's not going to make it. That kid's never going to make it. Yeah. yeah. That's good he left when he did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, when you're recruited, you start growing out your hair, too. We're going to talk a bit later about what sumo look like they got this very specific hairstyle and you got to start growing out your hair as soon as you join yeah their lives are highly controlled the japan sumo association has a lot of rules for its wrestlers like you can't drive a car um what clothing you can wear all sorts of stuff right and uh, once you join a heia you're there for your whole career so you better make sure it's a good one because you know there's a lot of variation yeah Make that choice correctly. Yeah. So we said that you grow out the hair for the top knot, and then at the end of your career, when you retire, there's a special ceremony where they cut off your top knot, and that's you know your retirement. And you can't come back. There's no coming back from retirement. You can't pull a Michael Jordan. Yeah, we could use that here in America. I feel like we could have more and more. <laughs> like, oh, I'm retired. Maybe I'm not. Make up your mind, guys. Yeah. Did you read much about their diet? Yeah, they don't eat breakfast, but they eat a very large lunch, which is usually chankonabe, yeah. which is a simmering stew with various fish, meat, and vegetables in it. Yeah, hearty and nutritious. Yes, fatty, protein, vegetables. They eat it with rice, and they wash it down with beer. Hmm. And uh, all of that helps them to put on weight. Yeah. And weight gain is pretty important because there are no weight classes in sumo. You don't get to just fight against people that are, you know, around your weight. And they can get up to 450 pounds. So you don't want to be a 150-pound dude going up against this monster. That'd be tough. Yeah. They also take a siesta after lunch. Mm. So gorge yourself, <laughs> drink a yeah. bunch of beer, and take a little nap. Yeah. And they train really hard in the morning. I mean, for they like do. five hours or so. So they're going to be tired. That sounds like a nice part of the day, that rest. <laughs> yeah. But man, I don't know if I could do that diet. I mean, not only are they eating a ton of food, I just don't have that big of a stomach, but also nabe, like hot pot, every day. And they said that they, they change it up a little bit by changing the flavor of the broth. Like yeah, they'll they use do. soy sauce one day and salt the next day and yeah. maybe miso the next day. Yeah. But still, I don't know. I feel like it's I different get ingredients of probably every day in there too. I guess. Yeah, one day it's more fish, one day it's beef, one day it's chicken, whatever. Sure. Um, so you can visit these heia if you are visiting Japan and you want to see some sumo wrestlers train. You're going to get a much uh, more close-up experience than you will at like a tournament because you can visit the place where they train. You're going to be sitting on one end of the room and they're just fighting right in front of you like 10 feet away. Yeah, that seems like a really cool experience. It would be. Not a place for children, though. It's a pretty strict place, even for visitors. You're not even going to be allowed to get up and go to the bathroom, I think I read. 
while they're training. Like you sit wow. there and watch and that's it. Yeah. I mean, they're professionals in their training. You're not there to interrupt them or get right. in their way. Right. I read about one tourist that went and visited and he, uh, so the stable master was standing there smoking and this guy was apparently, uh, didn't want to smell the smoke. So he went and asked the stable master to stop smoking. Oh like, no. Dude, this is his place. You know, you don't get to go dictate the conditions in this place. Right. Anyway. Should we move on? Do you got anything else? Yeah. I mean, another, I think, important thing about their lives is the lower ranked wrestlers have to serve as uh, manservants for the higher ranked wrestlers yeah. and the stable masters. Oh, they also eat last. There's a, you know, a really big system of seniority in sumo, which is pretty standard in Japan, I think, for a lot of things. Yeah. So they eat according to rank. Right. Higher ranked eats first. Yeah, while it's it's still hot. (laughs) Cold by the time the lowest guys are eating. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the life expectancy for sumo wrestlers is only about 60 to 65 years, Mm. which is about 10 years lower than the average Japanese male. Can think of a couple of reasons that might be. (laughs) Yeah, they tend to suffer from diabetes, high blood pressure, heart attacks, arthritis, Mm -hmm. and even liver damage from all the alcohol with all Mm. the beer and everything they're drinking. Interesting. Also, I thought it was interesting, the top two divisions of uh, wrestlers make salaries from about 9500 to $26,500 US dollars a month. That's a lot. Yeah, but the lower ranked wrestlers don't get a salary. They get uh, a monthly, a small monthly allowance. Hmm. And you know, they get room and board and food and yeah. training but yeah. there's, you can become very wealthy or you can languish in uh, near poverty, yeah. depending on how successful you are as a wrestler. Yeah. Sounds like a rough life. I don't think I'd want to do it. Yeah. They take a lot of beatings, you mm-hmm. know, concussions, bruises, broken bones, torn ligaments. I'm sure they deal with all of that stuff all the time. Yeah. So we should probably talk about what uh, what a match is like. You go see sumo. What are you going to see? Yeah. What's it going to be like? That is a great question. Let's say, okay, you got tickets to one of the big tournaments, all right? You're going to go in there. You walk in. You're looking around like a starry-eyed tourist. What is all this stuff? So, Paul, wh- tell us what the arena looks like. What are you going to see? So at the center of the arena, there's going to be a raised ring. It's mm-hmm. a circular ring on a raised platform. Yep. The doyo we the mentioned. The doyo, yes. So it's made from compressed clay, right? It comes from special parts of Japan, too. Yeah. And then on top, it's uh, rice straw bales. Yeah. Well, so the, the clay base, you got 18 feet across. It's a square, right? Two feet tall. And on the surface, you're going to see a circle. And that's where the rice straw bales come in. The edges of that circle are made of the rice straw that's buried into the clay. So you got these bales and like a little bit of it is sticking up. Yeah, it's a little bump. So you can kind of brace yourself on it, Mm -hmm. push from it a little bit. Yep. Creates a clear barrier of inside versus outside the ring. Yep. So the surface of this clay is covered with a thin layer of sand, which is a Shinto symbol of purity. And, you know, we mentioned Shinto... That is everywhere in these matches. I mean, every little, you know, movement, they do all of these uh, ceremonies and stuff, and everything that you see around the ring has some significance in Shinto. So you got this sand, and then 
what's hanging above the ring? There's often a roof, like the roof of a shrine. Yeah, it's modeled after the roof of a Shinto shrine. Because that ring is that, sacred space. Right, right. It's like this this whole place is the shrine. It's, it's holy, yeah. sacred. And uh, I read that that roof can weigh like six and a quarter tons. Wow. thing is huge. And they used to have them propped up on poles. But they really? Just, yeah, they used to have them just I suppose, there on yeah, the ground, before but, they had these huge indoor arenas. Yeah, but they decided to change it so that people could see from all directions, you know. That would suck to get stuck behind the, yeah. the pole. You miss a really important part of the match. Yeah, now it just hangs from the ceiling on wires or... Right. The arena is a square arena designed just for sumo. Mm-hmm. In the lower level, there's box seats that have tatami floors. Yep, and little no like cushions kind of yeah. floor. Yeah, and they see two to four people. And then in the upper levels, it's normal stadium seating with a chair and assigned seats. Yep. I got one of the chairs. It's expensive to get down there right in front of the doyo. Yeah. And uh, I think those ones, you pretty much need to book like a group of them. You can't just get one seat down there, it looked like. And honestly, as someone used to sitting in chairs all the time, sitting on the tatami for a whole day of watching sumo... I'd probably be super uncomfortable by the end. Yeah. I mean, you can get up and move around and go grab some food or whatever. Right. Like, you don't need to just sit for the entire day, but... At the tournaments, you can actually leave the tournament once per day. Like, go outside the stadium and come back in. There's only once? Only once. Oh, man. But you can go out and, like, grab some lunch or whatever you want to do, stretch your legs. Well, I hope they sell food in the stadium. They actually do. Good. (laughs) Uh, they sell bento boxes, sushi, yakitori, which is grilled chicken on a, a skewer. Yep. Can you get me some of that? They also serve little bowls of chonkonabe, so you nice. can try what the sumos eat. All right. Um, and then they've got ice cream, and they've got something called hiochan yaki, which are grilled cake-like buns filled with either sweet cream cheese or red bean paste. And they're in the shape of a sumo wrestler. (laughs) Oh, man, I'm getting excited. This is going to be fun. (laughs) They make it fun. So if you're going to one of these tournaments, the doors open at 8 a.m. And the matches start at 8.30. But it's like the lowest level matches. Mm -hmm. So it'll be pretty empty inside. I've heard it's if you want to, it's a chance to go hop to a seat closer to the ring. And watch for a while. Nice. But we'll the matches are less exciting. and Sure. I mean, they're not the big name guys. Later in the day, the big name guys arrive. And they're so popular that people wait outside the arena, like trying to spot them on the way in. <laughs> cool. Um, so let's get back to what was it going to be like when you walk in? So let's say you're getting there at the very beginning of the day, right? So there's a ritual that the wrestlers do to purify the ring before anything happens in there, right? Yeah. You're going to file in. They're wearing these uh, special ceremonial aprons. And they do this little ceremony that is like a pledge to the kami, a pledge to the deities that they're going to fight fairly and uh, with the proper spirit. Yeah. These aprons that they wear, they're pretty intense. Um, these things are made of silk. Is this just the high, the high ranking people? Yeah. Yeah. So they got these aprons. They can be worth up to like $4,000 because they're made all of silk. They're very intricately embroidered. Yeah. Some of them have their fan clubs will make one for them. 
some of them, their sponsor might make one for them. Mm -hmm. So they don't have to foot the cost out of their pocket. Mm -hmm. Another part of the little ceremony is they lift up their little apron. They raise their hands to show that they're not carrying any weapons. This is all just man on man. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when you see the Yokozuna do this, that's like the kind of the grand champion, right? Highest rank. Yep. They are going to wear these zigzag strips of paper hanging from their apron. And those you'll see at a Shinto shrine too. There's another Shinto reference. And there's also this rope sort of thing, like a belt, that is also a reference to a Shinto shrine. If you're at a shrine, you'll see those made of like straw twisted up as like an offering to the kami. So Shinto everywhere. Yeah. Before each match, the wrestlers will come out and do certain movements and rituals. Hard to describe them all, but yeah, there's a lot of pageantry going on. It's a lot of entertainment. For sure. So what, let's say the sumo guy, the rikishi, is coming out for a match. What's he going to look like? He's going to have his hair tied in a very specific top-knot style mm-hmm. called a shonmage. And that's a Edo style from hundreds of years ago. That's how the samurai had their hair in a top-knot. And they're going to be wearing, this is probably the most uh, familiar thing for Westerners about sumo is they got that uh, diaper, right? It's a diaper, <laughs> isn't it? Do they just go buy no. some huggies? It's a belt. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's called a mawashi. For lower rankings, it'll be made of cotton, but for the higher rankings, it's made of heavy silk, just like those ceremonial aprons that they had at the beginning. And what blew me away is these things are 30 feet long before they wrap them up. Yeah, they're wrapped and wrapped and wrapped. Yeah, and two feet wide. So they fold them over and yeah, wrap them up a bunch of times. And they're, they're heavy. Like, I don't remember exactly how many pounds I saw, but they're heavy. But the guys are too, so they can handle it. Yeah. If it comes off during the match... You lose by forfeit. I didn't know that. So you've got to make sure it's tied correctly. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of strategy actually in how you tie it even because we'll we'll talk about the the rules in a bit, but one of the big strategies is like you want to grab onto your opponent's mawashi so you can tie it tighter or looser, maybe wet it a little bit to uh, try to make it so they don't have as solid of a grip. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about the grips and levers and positioning. Mm -hmm. Um, And for official bouts, they'll not only have that, but you might see these twisted strings that kind of hang down from there. You saw that, right? Yeah. Those are called sagari. And those are, again, a Shinto reference. You'll see those same types of ropes hanging from the front of shrines. Uh, So we talked about the hair. The referee is going to be dressed similar to a Shinto priest. And I even saw... Sometimes they'll have a knife in their belt. Did you see that? The highest ranking officials carry a knife in their belt to symbolize that they're ready to commit ritual suicide if they make an incorrect call. Yeah. That's, they're that's into metal, it. man. They're into it. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah. The one other thing in how they look at is I haven't seen a sumo match live, but from what I read from people who had even though you know they're big and you know there's no weight classes, when you see them in person, you're still just shocked at their size and their speed and their strength. Just seeing that in person seems to make people 
just be like, wow. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, these aren't just your average heavy guys. Yeah, they're not just big guys push each other around. They're super strong and they're really fast. Yeah. So let's get into what happens when the match actually begins, shall we? Or I guess... <laughs> How do you begin a match? Right. So there's going to be an announcer that calls out the name of the wrestlers, which, you know, they do that in American wrestling, right? But yeah. uh, you got to just look it up and see how they announce these guys because they stretch out the names like super long. I guess they're aiming for like 10 seconds for each name. So they're really stretching it out. <laughs> That's also kind of similar to American wrestling. <laughs> I guess. But 10 seconds, it seems yeah. even longer. That's the as long. So the wrestlers are going to get in there. They're going to look each other in the eye and they're, they're each going to have a corner. And in their corner, they're going to sip some sacred water, and they're going to purify the ring by throwing salt into it. Yeah, and each wrestler has their own style of throwing salt. Some mm -hmm. of them get really grandiose with it. And yeah, they'll throw it way up in the some air. Some of the fans like, like this one guy because he's got a great salt throw. It's, it's really uh, yeah. part of the show. Yeah, I was watching videos and it's like the crowd goes crazy just from this guy throwing salt and up in the air. They're purifying the ring, but I think they're purifying like the first five rows probably too, <laughs> usually. Yeah, probably. Okay, they purify the ring. So more, more Shinto stuff. And this is probably pretty familiar to uh, people in the West too. You got the Shiki which is that squat thing that they do, right? Yeah. So they're going to get down on their haunches. You know, what I had in my head before doing this research is, oh, they lift one leg, they slam it down, they lift up the other leg, they slam that one down. But man, watching them do this, it's insane. They don't just lift that one leg, they point it straight up at the ceiling. Like they're basically doing standing splits. Yeah. It's amazing. I'm not going to lie. I've tried to do some in the last couple days. <laughs> And yeah, that was the first thing that got me, like how flexible they are. Yeah. Like I can't get my leg nearly that high. Right. And then they slam it down and get into a deep squat and hold it and then come back out. Yeah. These guys have strong, flexible legs. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, and why, why do they do that? What's the point of that? That's a uh, strengthening exercise. Well, there's also some Shinto symbolism right there of too. Of course. That apparently drives off evil spirits. Oh. And is derived from warriors doing that to scare off their enemies, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. Loud stomps. Mm -hmm. So uh, so they're going to do that. And they might, you know, it's not going to be exactly the same every match. They could do this a few times. Maybe they get down and stare each other down, and then they stand up and shake it off a little bit. And they'll do that, you know, up to like four times even. Yeah. So they, when they're down on their haunches, you'll see them kind of lean forward and put both of their fists down on the ground. Yeah, they are visualizing how the match is going to take place, how fast their opponent's going to come at them, what their first move should be. Mm -hmm. So they go through that a few times in their head. And after three, four, whatever of those, the referee will signal that the match is ready to begin. Yep. And then the Rikishi are going to both touch their fist down. And as soon as the last fist touches the ground, the match starts and they lunge. And it is serious, man. You can hear them just smack into each other. Yeah. I, I think I saw they did a, an experiment. They attached accelerometers to them and, uh, you know, just to see how hard they were hitting each other. Yeah. It's like 2,000 pounds of force. Yeah, it was like 13 Gs or something that yeah. they pulled when they slammed into each other. Yeah, and sometimes their heads hit 
They're not wearing any pads. Yeah. Their hair is a little bouncy, though. I saw that that can provide some padding when they hit the ground. But yeah, I think if a sumo wrestler slammed into me at that speed, I would just disappear in a poof of red. Oh, your only mist. chance would be to dodge. <laughs> yeah. Scary. So what are the rules once the match starts? You said that the point is to try to get the other wrestler either out of the ring or touch the ground with anything other than the bottom of his feet, right? Yep. So they charge at each other at the start, and often they'd run into each other, and you either try to use your momentum to push the opponent straight back out of the ring, or you can try to grab their belt and get some sort of leverage to either toss them out or to toss them on their side some way get them off their feet Mm -hmm. also i've seen you can kind of deflect someone that's charging you to use their own momentum to either get them off their feet or force them out of the ring yeah um it's it's really exciting it's usually over in like two three seconds Mm -hmm. though sometimes it can last a bit longer if they get grappled with each other both trying to find the best grip yeah so there are things that aren't allowed. This isn't just a free-for-all. There's no eye gouging, no hair pulling, choking, hitting with closed fists, although apparently slapping is okay with an open palm. Yeah, we just saw a couple videos where dudes just straight got knocked out with like an open hand to the face. Knocked out? Hard like enough. Unconscious? Yeah, it looked like a couple of those guys just fell over hmm. when they got hit. <laughs> now, there's also no kicking can't kick them in the chest or abdomen, but tripping is allowed. So yep. I feel like there's a little bit of a gray area there, I maybe. I think that's part of like, maybe like a judo influence where you're doing mm-hmm. certain throws and moves where you kind of got to sweep the guy's legs out from under him to get him off the ground. Yeah. So that's maybe where that comes from. Sure. And uh, so you can grab onto the mawashi, but you can't grab the groin area, just on the sides. Yeah, grab the belt. Yep. Uh, so once one of the... Rikishi succeeds in pushing the other out of the ring or getting him to touch the ground with something. The ref is going to, he has a fan and he's going to point that in the direction of the winner's side of the ring to indicate who won. Yep. But sometimes there are disputes and there are five judges sitting around the ring as well that can give input into a dispute. Yeah. And they, those five judges can overrule the main judge. Mm-hmm. And they also do sometimes look at video too. Mm-hmm. So they try to, they try their best to get the right call. Yep. And uh, what does the winner get? The winner of the tournament? Of the match. Like even right then, they get rewards. Each match is sponsored. And uh, right then, as soon as they win, you'll see them grab an envelope or even just a big stack of envelopes full of money from those sponsors. Yeah. And then, of course, there's awards for the... uh, There could be trophies and stuff, too, from the sponsors. Mm -hmm. I heard that, like, Coke, did like a trophy that looked like a can of Coke once. Hmm. They probably gave him some money too, hopefully. Hopefully. Because, <laughs> you know, that's worthless. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's that's the match. And there's just going to be a bunch of those throughout the day. Yeah. And uh, one thing I wanted to mention is we mentioned earlier there's no weight classes. Mm-hmm. But the average weight of a top-ranked sumo has continued to go up. Hmm. Um, so I saw that in 1969, the average weight for the top level sumos was 276 pounds. Um, then in 1991, it was 330 pounds. Wow. And then in 2019, it was 366 pounds. That's 
Crazy. So they're getting big. Yeah. But I'd, I'd call that big. Harv is like, some of these guys are like six, eight now. There's like huge guys, uh, just huge all the way around. Yeah. And part of that's because some of the foreigners coming in, mm, which we talked a yeah, little bit yeah. about earlier. There were always kind of for like the last hundred years or so foreigners, but they started becoming really successful um, at some point in like the 1960s or beyond. Hmm. And there was even a stretch from 1998 to 2017 where not a single Japanese-born wrestler was named a Yokozuna. Hmm. Not like there's a lot of Yokozunas running around, but there were at least a couple during that time, I think, that were born... One from Mongolia, you know, one from wherever. Mm. But there's a new rule now from the Sumo Association where each stable only can have one foreign wrestler. Interesting. So they have put that. a limit on it. Okay. And there's limits in Japanese baseball too, which is three foreigners per team, I believe. Hmm. Interesting. That's not a unique thing that they're doing. Yeah. I also want to point out though that you might think that the bigger guy always wins. Like, oh, he's got more weight. He can easily just shove the other guy over, right? Not necessarily true. I saw a lot of matches where the smaller guy, he just got a good grip, or a lot of times it means using the opponent's momentum against them. And, you know, the smaller guy can Right, win. if you're smaller, you might be quicker. Mm -hmm. There's other things you can use to your advantage. It's not just weight. Yeah. Weight tends to help, definitely. but it's definitely not the end-all, be-all. Right. The biggest guy is not usually the top-ranked guy. Yep. Though the top-ranked guy is usually pretty big. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't wait to see just how big these dudes oh, are. Dude. At the very yeah. beginning. 366 on average? Yeah. All oh, these guys can be massive. Yeah. I'm going to have to get down in there, like at the very beginning of the day, get way down there and take some close-up picks and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be cool. Yeah. Well, that's all I got for Sumo. You got anything else you want to add? No, I think that's a decent little overview of sumo wrestling. I think so, too. Well, uh, if you want to learn more about all sorts of Japanese stuff, see some cool pictures, check out our website at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. And uh, what are we talking about next week, Paul? The next episode, we will be talking about geisha. I'm excited for that one. Yeah, there's a lot of history. There's a lot that goes into that. And there's a lot of misconceptions out there too. Yeah, definitely. So it should be a fun episode. Yep, it will be, I'm sure. So thanks for listening and we will see you next time.